Transplanter RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter. That is at D-M-I-T-R-Y-O-P-I-N-E-S. And Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy believing in the power of D&D and Transplaner's potential to grow, tell great stories, and lift up our community. Explain Trade trains negotiators for governments, big companies, NGOs, and offers e-learning courses for individuals looking to get a better deal from their boss. Level up your charisma score and check out explaintrade.com. Hey there, thank you for tuning in to Trans Planar RPG. We are an all transgender, people of color led, 100% homebrew, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition live streamed actual play campaign set in an original non colonial anti orientalist world. I am your game master, Connie, my pronouns are they, he, and she, and my cast is as follows. C. Thomas plays Oka Hien, an Osamar Bloodhunter. Max Guo plays Dewey Quirk, an Aarakocra Artificer. Erica Flaidlin plays V. Noxherzo, an Elf Sorcerer. Valiant Dorian plays Vasca, a Yuanti Bard. Hamna Shahid plays Jaron Cotter, a Dragonborn Rogue. Dare Hickman plays Gentle, a Triton Monk. Quinn B. Rodriguez plays Sitlali, a Changeling Cleric. And Austin Knight plays Abiku Ishtar, a Reborn Goliath Ranger. So, with that out of the way, here are the content warnings for this episode. Content warnings for this episode include death of loved ones, grief, fantasy violence, body horror, apocalypse, war, complex and complicated relationships, romance, and flirting. Arc 8, Episode 7. So it was, so it is, so it shall. From Eulogy for a Dying World by Connie Chong. The thread tells a story. The woman knows it well. The story is long and unbroken. It is notched and frayed, colorful and black, the sound of needles clacking warmly. Warmly, the fire burns as the cold dark draws close. Close, she is now to the end of all things, things she held dear once. A lover's braid, the tooth of a wolf, the woven twine of thread. The thread is written in blood. There are names on every notch. The notches are splitting and the fire is dying. The dying has been told. The end is counted in bone. The final ears have closed and there is no one left to hear it. The woman works the thread. The yarn unfurls into nothing. The final end, the final knuckle, the final stitch on a scarf with no one left to wear it. This is it. She is here. She has been here before, and she will not be here again. So it was, so it is, so it shall. The woman cuts the thread. The thread is cut. The cut is done. Coldly, the fire goes as the long dark comes in. Inside, the Transplaner Reification and Nourishment Syndicate, Dusty is led down twisting halls of sterile white, cosmic blue, oceanic purple. The corridors are branching, interminable. 
a neural network of marble tile and long, thin tubes of glowing ichor mounted into the ceiling, lighting their way like deep-sea algae. Behind those thick, oblong windows that Artemis had called viewing bays, dusty glimpses and assortment of bizarre occurrences. Behind one window, machinery clanks and whirs, spinning fine filaments of steel thread into beautiful weapons. Behind another, plants, at least they think they're plants, grow in neat, manicured rows, orange stems curling up steel trellises. Behind a third, people, researchers, mercenaries, are garbed in sleek black leather and hanging straps. Some wear loose jackets of a translucent neon material, others wear half-masks, metallic and chrome, molded into the shape of animals' jaws. Still others wear hats, with short, curved brims jutting from the front, interwoven with glowing thread. These sellswords, scientists, whatever they are, engage in bizarre activities. They weigh slabs of glowing steel. They titrate substances into opaque flasks. They consult projections of incomprehensible symbols. In Dusty's mind, if these people were swords, they'd be obsidian and bronze, blackly gleaming with sharp pommels made of alien gemstone. They remind him of Artemis. Artemis, tall and sullen with her rigid gaze and shaven head. She wears a black leather vest with pockets and buckles and hard, gleaming knee pads. Her tattoos, to Dusty, are very cool. They're terrified of her. Artemis leads Dusty to a vast hall. The walls are dozens of feet apart. Pedestals of gleaming bone and brine-bright ivory intersperse this carpet with marble busts, statues, mounted on top. Carved likenesses of people, somber and austere, stare down at Dusty in every direction. Each plinth is marked with a card, written in a language Dusty has no idea has never seen before, but recognizes anyway. Names, dates, and then a presence pulls Dusty's gaze up. Standing amidst this sea of sober statues is a man. They wear a shimmering, iridescent robe that looks cut from a different reality. The material is fine, like silk, or grains of sand. The color of the robe refuses to stay static. It constantly shifts like shadows at the bottom of the ocean. The man's face is soft and angular, like a weapon made of gold. Their eyes are every color at once, and so is their hair. It's long and flowing and braided and dark and bright and never, ever, end. Dusty isn't quite sure where their hair stops and their robe begins. Their skin is so dark, it's so bright, the color of a storm-tossed sea. Magic steps forward 
and says, This is the child? Artemis nods. Dusty shrinks behind her. Magic looks through Artemis at Dusty, then rolls their eyes of infinite colors. And behind them, Dusty feels another presence. Despite their fear, they turn to look. Gazing upon one of many statues is a woman. Their face is round and bright, like a parhelion ring. Their skin is gold. Her hair is short, dark, curly. She wears a long, fluid dress of pure incandescent light. Dusty instinctively shields their eyes, but the light doesn't hurt. They have a feeling it could if she wanted it to. The woman is cupping the statue's face with short, soft fingers. They almost look sad. Virgo Chance, a stalwart warrior from a land ravaged by an apocalyptic mist. They were so brave, and so was she. The woman moves to a different statue. Maxima, a paladin hunting for a righteous cause against the forces of darkness. A third statue. Patricia Reinhardt, lost in a dried-up world abandoned by spirits, swallowed by evil. Finally, the woman tears her gaze away from the statues and looks at Dusty. A terrible darkness has stalked existence since before time began. Heroes across infinite universes have tried to stave off its influence with varying success, but none have truly sealed it away. Come, child, let me tell you a story. And then there are chairs and a desk and a book. Dusty cautiously sits. Artemis and Magic also sit. And Fate picks up the book. She opens it to a familiar page and begins to read. This is not a creation story, and these are not gods. Before there was nothing, there was everything. The first precept. They knew the beginning, and they knew the end, and they called themselves fate. Before there was everything, there was nothing. The first precept. She knew the end, and she knew the beginning, and she called herself Oblivion. What came first? Who's to say? The nothing before the everything? Or the observation of the nothing before the everything? They were nothing to each other, and they were everything to each other. Then came something, the third precept. They didn't care about the beginning or the end, and they called themselves 
magic. They sprang forth, strong and coiling, iridescent and dark, structured and formless. They invited everything on a journey, and together they left. And on their way, they made life and death, water and fire, luck and love, time and change, everything. Everything. Gods, worlds, realities, outcomes. It was never meant to be. It was always meant to be. Oblivion watched as fate and magic journeyed, and it decided to follow like a shadow in the wake of a sun. And where it followed, it destroyed. It devoured realities. It subsumed time. It ate existence after existence, life after life, magic after magic, and yet, fate and magic journeyed and journeyed and journeyed. They persisted. They made. They created. And one of these realities they created became your world, Dusty and Dake. Fate closes the book. The chairs are gone. The table is gone. Dusty is standing once more in this ocean of statues in the hall as wide as a world. My gratitude to you, Dusty, for finding us through the never. We've been looking for Oblivion for, well, forever. They were never supposed to be here in the first place. They were never supposed to end things, end anything, end something, end everything, end nothing. Artemis and the others have been doing their best to keep their forces at bay, but I think the time has come for Magic and myself to put our feet down for good. Um, so, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what is this place? Where, how, this is the Hall of Heroes. It's an infinite memorial to all the champions who fought and bled for our cause against annihilation. And your father and his friends are going to be heroes just the same. R right, right, my, my dad, his friends, we need to get back to Indake like yesterday. Can you get us there? Can you... Can you make everything okay again? Of course. It's what magic and I do. Magic? It has been, well, forever since I've seen Oblivion. I'm curious what they're up to on Andake. Oh, and I do remember making the weave. That was some mighty fine work, if I do say so myself. I'm in. Wonderful. Artemis, hold down the fort while we're gone, and prepare, let's see, 16 new busts. Dusty, hold on to your horses, as the mortals say. 
Why do I need to hold on to my... Dr. Aluso's homestead is exactly how Dusty remembers it. Minus the sky, minus the chasm. A brick and straw cottage with a humble wooden porch and a chicken coop attached to one side. Through the door, Dusty can hear voices. Magic makes an affronted, vague noise at the chickens, the bucket on the porch, the roof made of thatched tile. Fate pauses, takes in the demiplane. Then she opens the door. On the owlbear rug, holding Oka in their arms, is Dr. Eluso, is Oblivion. They're weeping. Everyone's weeping. The colors in here are new, tentative. Magic raises an eyebrow and says, Persuaded by footprints, snails, pebbles on the side of the road. Please tell me you're joking. And as soon as Oblivion reacts, their mismatched eyes, one brown, one blue, starting to tear away from Oka's face, Fate claps her hands together once, and the homestead is gone. The eight of you find yourselves back on stage. The sky is red, bleeding. The eyes of the stranger rove and rove. Empty beasts clash against Andakin soldiers clash against wild magic hemorrhaging into the now from infinite other planes. On the horizon, the stranger's body looms, the seed of annihilation humming in its vacuous chest. Also on the stage are the four other paragons, Old Mama Lightning, Rev, Manaya, Emperor Seungjen, as well as the other four keepers, Toktoa, Kagon, Halo, Bomba, Princess Kekoa, Mercy, other friends. Oblivion, Dr. Eluso, remains huddled in Oka's embrace. And as soon as the eight of you reappear in the now, Dusty, makes a break for it, runs right into Dewey's arms. And fate and magic, standing before Oblivion, before Dr. Eluso, look around at this chaos. Oh, well, magic, be a deer, would you? Magic cocks their head to the side, lifts a finger and pulls. The weave shudders everywhere all at once glows sings a song it's never sung before and every single portal all at once closes and on that fate turns back to face oblivion oblivion darling it's been so long and it's been no time at all You've had your fun. You've given us quite the runaround, might I say. But it's time. It's time for the fun to end. Well, for you, at least, we are going to seal you, the darkness, the evil, away for good. Yay! And for the first time since fate and magic arrived, oblivion 
tears their gaze away from Oka and looks up. It's impossible to tell what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Their tear-stained faces blank. During that pause, what did the four of you do? Uh, I think Abiku <laughs> gets in between the the stair down. Okay. Uh, um, hello. I am sure you know who I am. I, I assume you know every. Who are you? There is no response from fate or magic. They're like staring at you as you like insert your body between them. And you realize they're not staring at you. They're staring through you, looking at Oblivion, waiting for her to respond. Um, I turn around. My friend, who are these people? Oblivion's eyes tear away from fate, like beyond your shoulders and look up at you. They're the other precepts, Abiku. Oh, and turns around, this is on your fault. Fate cocks her head to the side, her short black curls sort of flopping gracefully to one side. Oblivion, who are you talking to? Oh, and her eyes suddenly focus and look at you, Abiku, for the first time like a giant noticing an ant. Oh, hello. Oh, hi there. Oh, oh, I know you. You're uh, Abiku Ishtar. Mm. Oh, I'm so happy to see you standing here. You look so healthy. Oh, look at you, your eyes, your skin, your hair. Beautiful. Yes, anyway, I was saying this is all your fault. You, you like, you oh. kind of caused this whole thing to happen. Abiku Ishtar, thank you. Thank you so much for helping us bring this evil to justice. See, this is exactly why I brought you back. Are you? Okay, I mean, that's... That would usually interest me, but right now I feel like you're like waiting for me to get done talking and then you say your thing and you don't listen to my thing. I appreciate you bringing this evil to us on this stage. All of you have worked so hard. What? There are so many of you. Oh, well, I did count right. 16. Well, there are a couple of extra, but that's no big deal. Uh, well, yes, thank you, everyone, for your hard work. But don't worry, the cavalry's here, as you mortals like to say. We're going to clean up this mess and lock away that evil forever. No, you won't. You won't, you won't, you will not be doing that. I, we will not be allowing that to happen. Magic, what do you think? Uh, and fate turns to magic. How about a moon or a plane or a black hole somewhere? Fiddle with the specifics for me, will you? Yes, my beloved, I'm thinking eight chains, eight locks, 16 keys scattered across 16 planes. Uh, we'll establish some guardians. Ah! Yes, yes, I love guardians. Ooh, they're so noble. I'll pick some bloodlines to carry the oath of the, let's call it the locked chain, for generations. Ooh, maybe I'll pick a dashing anti-hero. I'm thinking an orphan. Well, we'll make them an orphan. The details are negligible. It won't be fulfilling otherwise. Are you getting this down? Yes, darling. Guardians, keys, chains, lineage, orphan, anything else? No, 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 that feels right. As for this world, 
And Fate pauses as she turns to look at Endake. I think Aviko rubs her brow. Okay, I'm merely trying here. Um, so if you don't want to talk, like it's things are going to like. People don't like you here. I, I am trying to help you. Oh, what has been done to this place, Abiku Ishtar? What has been done? This place is a sandcastle. On the side of the journey, a beautiful sandcastle that Magic and I made. One of our favorites, really, I promise. But then we left, and in our absence, some feckless, ghastly interloper ruined everything. I mean, look at the state of this place. It's ruined now. And fate turns back around from looking at Andake to address the 16 of you. Do you really want to live in a world so full of her? So full of evil? The eyes, the wings, that huge black hole thing. Ugh. It's horrific. I, do you want to actually hear from us now or like, are you listening? I think at this point, Fosca steps right next to a Biku asserting herself into this space along, like standing side by side with her as they say this is our world and they are our friend we have done what you have failed and frankly neglected to do so we do not need you your guardians your keys your locks Go back to your journey, to your eternity, and play in other sandcastles. We are fine here. And as she speaks, there is a venom that she is spitting out, reminiscent of when she had confronted Shu Hai Miao. Except this time before two precepts. Fate's eyes focus on you. At first she was looking through you, now she's looking at you. Similar to how she was looking through a Biku and then briefly for just a half second at a Biku. And she cocks her head to the side, her face unreadable, and then says, Oh, Bosca. Oh, that's right. Oh, the tragic lover. Oh. I'm so sorry for what had to happen to Atalanta. I truly am, but it made you the woman that you are now. Look at you. You're beautiful, and I love you. Do not patronize me, fate. I know what had to be done to bring me here, and you are not responsible for who I am today. Oh, but I am. Oh, I'm responsible for all of this. <laughs> Well, without sand, there can't be a sand castle. And who do you think provides the sand? Or the water in the river, or the fish in the sea, whatever metaphor is easiest for you, type mortals, uh, to wrap your heads around. Let's see. And she turns back to gaze out at Andake, like Abiku and Vasca's passionate pleas were nothing more than just, like, ants. Oka stands up from where they were kneeling on the ground with Oblivion. And they're the small, one of the shortest people here, uh, even though they're 5'9". 
and they stand up and the hair on the back of their neck is raised. They press their forehead against Oblivion's for half a moment before they get up. And they come and they stand next to a Biku. Alright, so we tried talking. Can we do it my way now? Yeah, that, yeah, yes, everyone, yes, prep, yes. Yes, be my guest, Wolf. Do it. Yeah. All right. And Oka steps forward, slowly, confidently, meticulously. They stand in front of Fate, who probably doesn't even notice that they're coming. This is for Halo. This is for the Hounds. This is for Dewey and Vasanti, and Kane, and my sisters, and Abiku, and Atalanta, and Vasca, and my mother, and Hitsagatin, and Oblivion, and all of Andake, and also this is for me. And they crack the coin on their tongue, uh, and I would like to use my natural 20 to punch fate in the face with my sword hand. <laughs> Go for it. How do you punch her? really hard, as close to her face as I can reach, and as they swing like up and back, uh, that sword, the tattoo that Ravi gave them, juts out of their knuckles, and they go right for her jaw. The blood sword comes out in an explosion of crimson, and you punch Fate's face as hard as you have hit anything. And all of you see that sword lance through Fate's soft jaw through the cavern of her mouth and out through the flesh of the other jaw and her head cracks to the side and her eyes widen. Do you pull your fist and the sword back out? Absolutely, I do. Technically, it does 200 points of damage, just as a heads up. Oh, 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 <laughs> all right. Oh my God, yeah. Okay, boof. It's like, there's like a sonic boom from this collision and you like rip your hand back and another explosion of bright, red blood flies into the air off of Fate's body and the blood turns into butterflies that just flutter off. And Fate, her head still turned to the side. We see that hole in her mouth, a hole in one cheek, a hole in the other, sort of twitch and then seal up, like cracks splintering over the surface of a frozen lake, just seal. And she turns her head back to look at you, Oka the same way she looked at Abiku, the same way she looked at Bosca. And then she's smiling. Her bright round face sparkling like the light of a forgotten moon. She's smiling wide and proudly at you and there's almost like a glitter of admiration in her eyes. Oka Hien. Oh. You were one of my favorites, too. Look at do you. Do not say my name. Do not say my name. You do not deserve it on your tongue. Oh. Oh, no. No, no, this is... Well, this is wrong. I didn't give you this. And you feel something cold and smooth against your forehead, Oka. And you see that Fate's hand is suddenly arched up. You didn't perceive her moving, but her hand is arched up towards your head now and is touching, you realize, your royal crown. The crown your mother father gave you, the crown that designates your rightful place as trueborn, as child, as heir, as beloved. Oh, no, 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 no. You, you weren't supposed to have this. No, 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 certainly not. Well, Oka... 
You are very welcome. I'm fixing this before we reboot this place. I'll make sure your bust in the hall has just the right decorations for you. What the fuck are you talking about? And then fate moves their hand back, and the crown that she's conjured out of your soul is in her palm, and it turns to dust. Glowing, lambent, bright gold dust that washes away into the breeze, mixing with the bone-white ash descending from that crimson sky. And Oka, as soon as your crown crumbles, your heart stops. And so do the hearts of every single paragon of Antake. And all of you in reverse order of ascension, Oka, Manaya, Dewey, Old Mama Lightning, Bosca, Vasanti, Rev, and Seongjin drop to zero. Your bodies crumble. They just go limp, like marionettes with strings cut and boo-boo onto the ground. How are the keepers responding? <laughs> uh, badly! Uh. <laughs> Here's the most fucked up situation. What do you do? <laughs> Uh, I think, <laughs> um, Abiku is gonna call Rev? Not Rev, uh, Grim. Is okay. gonna summon Grim and like, yeah. and hoist it at fate. <gasps> yeah, Grim appears as Rev drops to her knees and then onto her chest, like motionlessly, and the silver blade scythes into existence in midair as you like close your hand around that hard wooden sheath of it uh, and you launch yourself at fate I assume and you're trying to hit her yes <laughs> okay so I'm not even gonna ask for an attack roll here Abiku That's fair. Uh, <laughs> as you swing the scythe down toward where fate was standing above Oka's body uh, your blade cleaves through air and you're on Fate is standing in front of you. Well, 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 well. This is just a menagerie of mistakes, isn't it? Oh, magic, oblivion. Look at all these wrong decisions, all these off-script choices. Oka's crown, well, the entire establishment of whatever this is, what, keepers? Now that's just, now that's just impudent, I think. I mean, talk about spitting in the face of the artist. Leave the creating to the creators. <laughs> you know what I mean? Be happy with the autonomy you've been given. Don't punch above your weight, class. Prime example here, Jerron Cotter. Oh, honey, you're not supposed to be alive. Let me fix that. The second this phrase, let me fix that is said, gentle is running. Okay, Who are yeah, you gentle. A mistake? Gentle, you are booking it. Like, you're so fast. You're still a hypercharged monk right now, I think. So you just dash across that stage. Are you trying to insert yourself between Jaron and Fate? I think even despite knowing it's not going to do anything, I think if I can uh, be a little, have a little fun with some, with some, some of the little magic I have, uh, essentially use a gust of wind at the same time I throw a punch and just try to shove Fate somewhat away from all of us. Mm, mm, yeah, I think this wind whips up and pushes you forward and you like 
cut your body between Jaron and Fate with like a fist drawn back as Fate's fingers were reaching up to Jaron's face. And now those fingers are reaching up toward you interminably fast. Like she's, you're fast, but she's light. She is quicker than light. And her fingers are almost at your face. And then both Jaron and Gentle, I think the two of you are knocked a little bit sideways by something kind of big and kind of hard as Mercy intercepts herself, like body checks the two of you out of the way and Faith's fingers touch the side of her face and Mercy's eyes go wide and she collapses. Mercy, what did you do to her? Oh. Oh, well, that's fine. It doesn't really matter anyway. The what order did that you this happens do to in. her? Oh, well, she's dying. No, no. Sit Lolly. Sit Lolly. I think Sit Lolly had been uh, trying to figure out what to do about the other paragons. And then hears this, sees this, and is there immediately doesn't pay any attention to fate doesn't pay any attention to Jaron or gentle just their knees hit the ground next to mercy and when they do a field of marigolds just sort of starts to spread out from there the epicenter like a fucking crater and the blooms are orange and then red and then yellow, orange and then red and then yellow, and they just kind of oscillate like that. And I think Sitlali lays on the ground next to Mercy, interlaces their fingers, and with her other hand reaches up to cut Mercy's face and says, hey, hey, look at me. And Mercy, prone on the ground, uses like the last bit of strength to look up at you. And you realize that this kind of death is not a kind of death you've ever encountered as cleric of the Raven Queen, as paladin of the Weave. This is a kind of death that has not touched Andake before. The color is leaving Mercy. Her skin is turning gray. Her eyes are turning like black and white. Like her hair is leaching that crimson into just a dull kind of gray, gray all around. Like she's being washed out with a paintbrush. And like the grayer and grayer, the more monochrome she gets, the closer she approaches true death. And she's looking up at you. Hey, Zibali. So, and they lay down flush on the ground so Mercy doesn't have to look up. When we, when we, when we get out of this, um, when we, when we save the world, um, how about you and I get married, huh? Anywhere you want, wherever you want. <laughs> How about Bacchanalia Beach? I'll get yeah. a virgin pina colada. Gentle can officiate 
Jaron can be our best man. Maybe we'll make Oka the ring bearer or something hilarious. Mm. They do have a lot of rings, you know, the halos and stuff. Um, but I've I've been thinking, um, Thorn Thornheart's not a very good fit for either of us anymore, is it? <sighs> Remember how we started? Somewhere between Selim and Ravi. <laughs> look at us now, Mercy. Look at us. Um, how about Goldheart? How, how do you how do you like that? I think that's fucking perfect. Mercy and Salali Goldheart of the Hounds of Mercy. And we can, after we get married, we can go and and we can introduce you to Spider properly. If you want, we can do whatever you want after we get out of this. I love that. Mercy and Sitlali Goldheart. Feels right. And Sitlali kisses Mercy's cheeks, her nose, her jaw, her temple, her forehead, and leans into her ear. You taught me how to love. You taught me how to be loved. I am in your debt, Mercy Goldheart. I'm in yours too, Zitlali Goldheart. Forever. And Mercy lets out this, like, deep, long, shuddering sigh. And that final point of color in her eyes fades to black. And Sitlali kisses Mercy's lips. And as they cast Spare the Dying, Connie, what color is Mercy's soul? As it levitates off of her sternum, off of her chest, you see it was once a deep, burning red. But as you swear this deathbed vow to each other, it turns to gold. Uh, It sort of twines forward toward you. And Sitlali cradles the soul in their hands, and I think just lays down on top of Mercy's body as the marigolds swallow them both up. And Mercy Goldheart dies. Jaron, gentle. As the two of you watch the marigolds bloom, as you watch Sitlali cave into themselves, as you watch Mercy die, you know. In your heart of hearts, you both know exactly what this gesture means. How much Mercy cares about both of you. What Mercy would give for both of you. 
You remember all of the hard, cruel, unfair things Mercy has ever said and done to you. And you know, in that moment, that this gesture is many things. It's an apology. It's a promise. It's an act of love. Jaron and Gentle, what do you do? I think Jaron stands there at first just watching the marigolds creep up over Mercy's body, over Sitlali's body, and he knows that not to interrupt them. So they turn over to Gentle, who had been pushed over by Mercy as well, and Jaron reaches out for Gentle's hands, his own shaking, because he can't steady them in this moment. I, uh, I, I take it. Uh, mine's still shaking and unsteady as well. And I think Jaron takes your hands, Gentle, in theirs, and they pull you in closer to them. They, not like forcefully, but they sort of like guide you towards them to be closer to them. And they bring your hands up to their lips and they kiss them. And they look at you, tears falling from his eyes. I love you, gentle. I love you too, but you know that. No, I love you, gentle. And if fate is going to take people away from us, I, I need to tell you before it's too late. I love you too. And Jaron will, I think, pull Gentle into a hug, holding them, I think perhaps a little bit too tightly in that hug. And they just start to, I think, quietly sob into Gentle's shoulder. It takes, I think, Gentle a couple seconds longer to break down, but they do as well. And I think they just hand sort of just rub your back if that's okay, just to help comfort you. And I think we pan away from this scene, both of your knees, I think, stained by the gold of the marigolds that continue to bloom outward from the epicenter of death on this stage. We pan across the wood to find a biku. Oh, shit. Um, a biku feels... I am in a deep state of conflictment with... Is there still, like, a battle going on? So, Abiku, as you're in a state of shock, looking around, trying to take all of this in, you see fate and magic have turned from Holly and Mercy and Jaron and Gentle, like they've just forgotten about them. Uh, and they're turning around and in the middle of talking with Oblivion, the three of them are engaged in a dialogue. And Oblivion is saying, I never had a choice. You never gave me a choice to be anything but a villain. And now look what you're doing, fate. Look at, look at what both of you are doing. This is, this is wrong. Oh, boo-hoo. And why do you deserve a choice? What purpose does giving end a choice serve, except to end everything that everything makes? That's all you see me as, isn't it? 
an end. A ruin. You are everything that was, is, and will be fate. And yet, you can't conceive of a reality where I am more than just annihilation. You're oblivion. Honey, it's what you do. I make sandcastles, you wash our hard work away. It's just the way things are. And it's awful. It is not just the way things are. You made it that way and awful. I'm not trying to be awful. Maybe it was time for the sandcastle to go. Well, not on my watch. I like sandcastles. I don't want them to go. And so they won't. Never again. Like I said, Magic and I are going to lock you away forever. We're going to seal away the darkness that's been chasing us and chasing us and chasing us, destroying our beautiful sandcastles, annihilating everything we make. You, my love, my dear, are the eater of love. You consume everything that is good. You take, you take, you take. You've even convinced these poor, sad little mortals that you're somehow the misunderstood hero, which I'll never understand, quite frankly, and Magic and I are somehow the bad guys. We have an entire hall at Trans dedicated to the real heroes across the multiverse who died trying to stop you, trying to prevent dozens, hundreds, thousands of realities from dying because of you. You gave me no other choice. You think I wanted to destroy those planes the way I manifest in reality. Your rules dictate I must. You don't understand me at all, do you? Abigu. That's what you overhear. Fuck. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I, uh. Our Abiku is conflicted because the people are so dying. She's like, I have to work on the assumption that like we can save this reality, which because I can't let people's souls get annihilated by the black hole in the sky. So she is one part trying to like do that with Grim, and one part looking for Chunyi and Taktoa. Your girl's busy. Um, so she's trying to like, she's like, we need to do this, but assuming my friends can do this, I can't let any souls that are dying like slip into the like the seed of annihilation, which is still there, right? Yes, it is. The seed yeah. of annihilation is still looming in the sky beyond the horizon. The three precepts are in the middle of talking to each other, uh, none of them seem particularly concerned about the looming end of yeah. the world and everything we know. Uh, they're just talking. And Abiku, as your eyes sweep and scythe across the stage, I think you find Visanti, uh, where her body is crumbled, next to Rev's body, of course, the paragon of life and death. And Visanti, 
I think as we push in on you, like at zero HP, you are teetering on the brink between life and death. Like you get the sense you can almost like feel the ethereal plane closing around you. You can feel your soul, this mercurial, ever-changing, double-edged thing trying to flee from your ribcage, but then still being anchored there by a little bit of that mind, that body, that consciousness that's still awake, and facing you on the floor of the stage, lying next to you like lovers in a bed, is Rev. And she's looking at you. And her mouth is trembling as both of you are fighting for purchase here, the god shard of the Raven Queen roiling within Rev's darkened chest. Visanti. And she like reaches out a hand toward you. Visanti, weakly and with such slow breaths, like there's a little bit of time between each breath. Uh, she manages to sort of like grunt a little bit to get her hand into Rev's and holds on to it um, very weakly but is looking Rev directly in the eyes, uh, tears beginning to form in them. Rev, this can't be how this ends. Visanti, I laid like this with Leaf once, both of us dying. I tried to trade my life for hers. And it took me until now, this very moment, looking at you, I think, to realize that even if the trade had worked out, even if that risk had paid off, that's not the only kind of love I can offer. And it's not the kind of love you deserve. Vasanti, you deserve life. You deserve beauty. You deserve a family. Abiku helped me realize that. Leaf and I, we were separated in life. And we were separated in death. But that's not our love, Vasanti. We die together. Or we live together. There is no in-between. You have been the best thing that's ever happened to me forever. I don't care about anything else. I just, I can't do this without you. You, you gotta stay here with me. And Rev, like, closes her fingers around your hand and squeezes it looking you deep, deep in the eyes. We live together, Basanti. We die together. We live together. Vasanti, um, I think closes her eyes and you can just see like a tear going down her cheek onto the ground and with like the very last of her strength sort of just leans in and what she believed could be her last kiss kisses Rev and Rev kisses you back with that same deep soft acceptance 
and we pan across this scene to find Dewey. Dewey, you're crumpled on the floor of this stage. And as soon as you hit zero, as soon as your heart stopped, it pumped once painfully and then stopped, I think you can feel the magic binding your life force to the attunements of the various magical items and fusions you have. Uh, and you feel each bond uh, straining and then snapping. How many infusions do you have? Six plus forge. Okay. So seven total plus forge. Uh, and there's an artificer feature where you can break your attunement with an infusion to like bring you back up to one, right? If you hit zero. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think this kind of like insta drop to zero is so intense that Dewey, we find you like collapse on the ground, like struggling to get up uh, as bing, like one infusion breaks. Uh, and then you feel like you're struggling back up and then it's hit, like you're, you're squashed back down again. And then another infusion breaks, snap. And then another infusion breaks, snap, 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 snap. Like five of them. Five of these bonds just snap, struggling to bring you back up to one, right? Like a cat losing like eight of its lives in a single blow until there's only one infusion left that you can feel that bond starting to break, but it's always your choice whether or not you want to smash it. And that particular bond is talking to you right now. They're knelt over your body and they're shaking you and they're crying. And Dusty is saying, Dad... Dad, Dad, please, get up. Get up, Dad. Dad, what's happening? Please. Dusty? Hey, 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 Dad, hi. Hi, it's me. I'm back. I was in a place, a demi-plane. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you all about it after this is over. Just, can you stand? Can you, can you open your eyes? Are you, are you okay? Tell me you're going to be okay. Tell me everything's going to be okay, Dad. I, I don't know, um... Dusty, you have to know, I'm I'm sorry. What are you talking about, Dad? What do you mean you're sorry? Just get up and I'll forgive you, okay? Just just get up and and save the day. Like, like I know you're going to save the day and and everything's going to be fine. I promised you so much. What What do you mean? What are you talking about, Dad? I don't know if I can do everything I promised you. I... I... Oh. And both of you feel it at the same time. That bond binding your souls together. That bond between artificer and infusion. And Dusty's body was given to them as one of your artificer traits, one of your powers. You're able to construct a body for now, but it's not a real body necessarily. It's not autonomous. It's linked to you, to your life. And I think both of you realize in that moment kind of what's happening here. And Dewey, I think you have a choice. You can basically break that attunement to come back, but that will render dusty back into their original form, that of a non-sentient magical sword. Or you can 
sacrifice yourself here. Allow yourself to die so Dusty can corporealize and become real. As I think both of your eyes widen, as the two of you, as Artificer and Infusion, realize simultaneously that's the choice, Dusty looks at you and says, wait, wait, no, Dad, no, 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 wait, wait, there's... There's a way out of this. I know there, there is. I'm smart. You're smart. We can, we can, we can figure a way out of this. We can, uh, um, um, uh, trance. The, the, the demiplane, the, the bureau, the, the syndicate I was at. It's, it's a weird place, but it might, maybe it's the key. It's kind of like out of space and out of time at the same time. I don't think magic really applies there, but it does. It's confusing, but if I go back to trance, if I zap myself back there, I maybe we can both, you know, keep being alive, keep being real, keep being people. I, I won't be able to come back, but, but that's better than not being here. Please, please, Dad, please don't do this. Please, let me go back to trance. Just let me go back and We'll both be okay. And let you be alone there. Well, it's, it's, it's a big place. Uh, I'll make friends. I think... With, with those two? Uh, I'll figure it out. Just please don't do this, Dad. Please. This is my choice and this is what I want. Let me go back. Please. Okay, but I gave you life once. And I would do it again. And I will do it again. The real life. I know, I know, Dad, but please not here. Not now. Not when everything's okay again. Then we can talk about it, okay? When everything's alright. When everyone's happy. And alive and here. Okay? Okay. 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 Um. All right. I think I remember how to. I'll see you soon. I. I love you. Love you. And Dusty whoosh, disappears, like teleports, vanishes from the stage. And Dewey, uh, you feel something in you, like crack a little, uh, and that pain sort of leeches away from your soul as you like breathe in like a fuller lungful of air but that connection binding you to dusty becomes so thin like it's like a rope with every single twine ripped away except for that final last bit of thread um and you can barely feel dusty out there beyond and we now pan across this stage over to Vasca. Vasca, as your heart seized for that final fatal time, I think you like fall just in a single motion to the ground. You just fall. And as your head hits the stage, uh, it actually lands onto a pillow. And when your eyes open, lying next to you in the after is Atalanta. Champion. Hey, hey. Took you a long time to get here, didn't it? 
get here? Yeah. And you see her, like, proud, regal face with just a shadow of something over it. Something in the knit of her brow, something in, like, a shadow falling over her pearlescent horns. And you feel something half there on your cheek, and you realize it's Atalanta's fingers, but there's something a little off about it. It doesn't feel fully there, fully real. And as your eyes are sort of like wavering and you're blinking and trying to pull this into focus, you see Atalanta's body is like almost translucent and you can see the battlefield beyond it. It's like the after is superimposed over the stage. Like you have one foot in the now and one foot in death. I think Vasca at first eases into like the touch it feels like a long-forgotten dream, a comfort, feeling Atlanta's touch once again. And she, like, holds her hand there, and that's when she clocks it behind Atalanta. A foreboding sense of reality. That she's dying. Her friends are dying. And, and... And everything that she remembers it to be might die too. And she kind of, in that eyes widen, she looks back at Atlanta. My, my friends, they, is that what's happening right now? <sighs> I think destiny might be calling you again, my crate. No, 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 no. And she, like, sits up on the bed, and I think, like, the bed solidifies a little bit more. Yeah, and we see, like, a, a ghostly after image of your body still on the bed, the stage, like, still lying prone. As you sit mm -hmm. up, it's like that spiritual, that soul. You're, like, leading deeper into death. No, no, I... I've had enough of destiny, I... Not, not that, not that, not like, not like this. And I think she like stands up and begins pacing and it is a similar pacing to when she first left Atalanta. Mm. And she conjured one of the greatest stories she had ever told. That she didn't love Atalanta and that it was okay for her to walk away. And it is that same, like, frantic pacing. No, no, not like this, not like this. She looks back at Atlanta and she says, You know I don't want to leave you. I knew that the first time. Love. <laughs> Didn't fool you then, did it? You were always so quick with a smile, so quick with a story, a distraction. But I always saw, I always saw the real you, Vasca. I do not value this destiny more than I value you. I do not. You understand that, yes? 
I do. I didn't want to leave you then, and I don't want to leave you now. I can't let them have their way. I know. If this time, it's a choice, and not a calling, I'll let you go. Vasca kneels at the foot of the bed closest to Atalanta and I think has a hand on her knee and she says kind of like choosing her words and (laughs) feeling speechless in this moment all my life I did everything right I did everything that fate wanted me to do even losing you and I I will not have that space and time can only keep me from you for so long I will return to you one day I will. And I think as she's like, she grips Atalanta's knee tighter. I am not her agent anymore. I am yours. In this life and the next. And in the afterlife. And till we return to oblivion together. And Atalanta gets out of the bed and kneels down on the rug with you and holds you so gently around the waist and looks you deeply in your eyes and says, You are yours. I am mine. I am yours. And you are mine. I'll see you soon. But until then... I'll keep the bed warm. And in this moment, I think Fosca, in a moment of pure courage and pride, wraps her arms around Atalanta's neck and in a huge surge of a movement and plants a kiss upon her lips. This is how it should have always been. This time, the farewell is done right. And as we cut away from this after, we pan back into reality, back into the now, across the stage toward Oka. Oka, like everyone else, you are barely conscious. And I think you can also hear the murmuring voices of fate, magic, and oblivion just like Abiku could, because you're right there. Your body is prone on the ground behind Oblivion, who's facing off against these two other precepts. And you're a blood magician. And as soon as fate had stopped your heart, I think you had collapsed. Uh, But you can feel your own magic sparking through your veins as you're teetering on the edge of life and death. That blood, those cells, that sanguine power. What do you do? 
for the upteenth billionth time, Okahian refuses to die. And I would like to use my own bloodbending feature to pump my own heart by sheer force of will. I love that. You do it. Describe to me what it feels like as like your that muscle that is your heart begins to contract as you force the blood to move through the ventricles, through the veins, through the arteries, and back through your circulation system again. Austin said it perfectly in chat, too angry and gay to die. Uh, as it feels like lightning, right? Like this red hot lightning in their blood. Vinash did this for them once and they do it for themselves again. Uh, as they drag themselves up onto their elbows and knees, panting, sweating, pumping their own heart by force. They practiced with this for so long, bringing their heart rate up and down, up and down. And they forced themselves all the way up to standing, wobble a little bit, their wings kind of splayed out on the ground behind them. And they look for a biku. Uh, I'm probably not too far as I'm caught between like four different things to do and see you like standing <laughs> question mark and I think if Iku rushes over to the only you're the only one who's gotten up so far I believe uh, so I rush over are, are you okay what happened did, is it wearing off whatever they did no not yet I can't stand on my own uh, and they kind of lean against you a little bit and as they touch you if it's okay with you mm -hmm. I think this force of will that they are pumping their own heart bleeds into you and your heart also beats if that's okay with you if connie will allow it fuck yeah that's cool with austin yeah uh sorry uh uh a biku just i just touched my chest and she just starts crying Come on, Ishtar. This is a promise. We have a friend to save. We have a friend to save. And Oka slips their hand into Ibiku's and starts to try to walk toward Oblivion's back. Yeah, Oblivion has not gotten up. They are still kneeling on the stage, their back turned to the two of you. And fate and magic, you see them actually step away like they're done with whatever conversation they were having. And they step toward the edge of the stage and they start surveying Andake. And the two of you feel the magic of the weave beginning to strain and pull. And we see shit begin to happen. We see the eyes in the sky beginning to close one by one. And where they close, they leave like starry patches bright starry patches of dark night sky behind but they don't seem like that's the only thing they're here for the magic is teeming and roiling with some deeper greater purpose uh, but oblivion is slumped there isn't stopping them isn't doing anything in fact in the slump of their shoulders it seems like all the fight's gone out of them they're slack and across the front of their lap is Dr. Luce's lab coat no, uh, I say as we walk up to them, this is this is not the the doctor Russo I know. 
and Oblivion turns their head slightly to look at you uh, through the blue eye that you sort of see in profile. Well, Abiku Ishtar, there is a part of me, a bitter, vengeful, seething part that wants to burn them all down. Destroy all of it. I know I could, if I wanted to. I've been holding it back for infinity. I'm stronger than her. I can do it. I know it. Destroy everything that everything has built. Well, I am glad you have not, because then I would have never had your delightful cakes. <laughs> Chickens can't live in nothing. And Oblivion drops their head down completely so you can't see their face anymore at that. And when they lift it back up, they look over their other shoulder with that brown eye. The chickens. <gasps> I almost forgot about the chickens. And they blink and they turn on their hands and knees fully to look at the two of you. One eye brown, one eye blue. On their face and expression, torn between that blank, unknown neutrality of oblivion and that bright, curious spark of Dr. Eluso. This is your home too, you know. Um, we have been giving it our all, but, uh, as you can see, Oka cannot stand on their own, and we could we could use some help. Doc. Sagu. We need your help. One more time. For us. For Endake. For my friends. For us. Okay. Pan away from this scene to Sitlali. Sitlali, inside this dome of marigold flowers, it's just you. And it's just mercy. Everything else, the sounds, you can feel the weave beyond this pulling and pushing and singing in ways you have never felt it pull and push and sing. But right now, I think your eyes are fixed on mercy. What do you do? Sitlali is curled up against Mercy's motionless chest. And their undercut has grown out to its full length again. So they have their full mane of hair again. And she is five foot two again. And I think the air and even maybe the weave here shudder and move in time with their sobs. And Sitlali is cradling Mercy's soul in one hand against their chest. And I think they reach out and touch the weave with the other. And I think for the first time since they made that blood oath, when Sitlali looks at the weave, the weave looks back. And even though magic is here and magic is pushing it beyond its limit, 
because this is not the weave that magic remembers. This weave is broken and tired and incomplete. And even in grief, the wheels turn a little slower than they normally would. But nonetheless, they still turn. So Lally Goldheart does not fucking rest. So every place the weave is severed or frayed or decayed around her, Silali reaches out and leaves a little pastel magic behind to patch it and does this over and over inside of this marigold dome that they have made for themselves. She is sewing it back together with bits of herself, with their magic, and it is shimmering, and suddenly it is hot and tight, and the marigold's colors begin to oscillate faster. And then Sitlali pulls out the Raven Queen's feather and looks at it for a long time and says, My lady, you told me once when I was lonely and empty that it isn't power that matters. It's what you do with it. I'm sorry it took me so long to understand what you meant. I think I get it now. And Sitlali strokes the raven feather lightly with her thumb, and it slowly disintegrates into tiny orbs of light that start to rise up and out into the darkness. And cradling Mercy's soul in one hand and her face in the other, they say, Mercy Goldheart, you deserve to see the stars again. You deserve a kinder ending. You deserve the world. And those inky wings just kind of tear out of Sitlali. And Sitlali's hair is lifted by some invisible wind as every marigold bloom turns into an orb of light and begins to float up and away into the dark as Sitlali casts True Resurrection at ninth level. As the lights float up, up, and up, those marigolds disperse into pure radiance, illuminating Mercy's face, illuminating your skin, your wings. And for the first time in Andake's history, it works. Color floods back into Mercy's body, just glowing in a single fell swoop. And in that moment, Sitlali, I think your eyes go wide on her face and you see on her chest resting paws of rabbit, Sen. Sens sitting there next to you with their paws on Mercy's chest as life breathes back into her body and they're looking up at you and they're saying, No, I think he would have really liked this. And they're gazing past you and you just feel it. You know what they're looking at. A fox 
On the other side of the stage, ghostly, several tails peeking out from their back, head cocked, the brother of the Raven Queen. And then when you look back, Sen is gone, the Fox King is gone, the Raven Queen's presence whips up and Mercy gasps to life as her soul returns to her body whole and unharmed and magic suddenly tears their gaze away from the edge of the stage and looks at you, looks at you, Sitlali, for the first time since arriving in Andake, looks at you fully, not through you, not down at you, but at you fully. And he says, whoa, that's never happened here before. And his distraction pulls fate's attention away from restructuring Andake, she turns, and she looks, she sees Sitlali, she sees Mercy gasping, sputtering color, returning to her cheeks, to her clothes, to her form. She sees each of the paragons stirring, Oka swaying limply, their blood artificially pumping through their chest, a Biku next to them, Jaron, Vasca, Gentle, Vasanti, Dewey, all of you, all of it. And fate lets out a deep, enduring sigh. She lowers her hand from where it was pointed skyward, and one of the eyes pauses in the middle of winking closed. <sighs> yes, yes, yes. I understand. You're heroes. Look, I'll build some new statues in our hall. I'll make sure your stories are remembered. I promise. And Dake has had a good run. It's been good, I will admit, but I do think it is better for everyone if we just restart this. It's cleaner that way. We'll start fresh. I'm thinking this time a pantheon of four, no, 11, mm, no, that's not quite right, 20. 20 gods, let's start there. I do like worlds we make with double-digit deities magic. They're always fun. So many moving parts. All right, then. And she raises both her hands up. Let's run it again from the beginning. Now she starts to clap her hands together. Oblivion stands. Fate pauses her hands mere inches away from touching. And Oblivion, looking her dead in the face, says, No, I'm not letting you hurt them, Fate. I'm not letting you hurt my friends. On the stage, Oblivion stares fate dead in the eyes, their own mismatched blue and brown fixating against fate's bright, bright, glowing visage. And then Oblivion closes their eyes briefly and turns their gaze toward all of you. Their eyes lingering on mercy, sputtering back to life. We see a constellation of golden thread? No, scars? No, tattoos? Not quite, petals. 
spreading out across the skin of her chest, marigold tattoos in a perfect mirror to sit lollies. Oblivion's gaze sweeps past the keepers, past the paragons, and then Oblivion says, to you, not to fate, not to magic, but to all of you, I'm going to need your help. Oka steps forward. And despite the tears and the way that they wobble on their feet, still pumping their own heart, they reach up toward the halos behind their head. And they have never been able to touch them. They've always kind of just like bled past their fingers. But they reach up and they take the central one behind their head and they pull and they pull it off and out as the other seven halos kind of collect themselves around the back of their head. And as they tear it out of place, it begins the oblivion that they pull it out of begins to bleed silver, the color of their soul. And it drips down their face, silver blood. As they take this halo, this piece of prism, this piece of themselves, and they hold it in their hands, backward, forward, and they shrink it down to the size of a ring. And they walk forward, and they slip the ring onto Oblivion's finger. Oka. And looking at Oblivion, you're not sure if it's Hitsagatin or Oblivion speaking. Maybe it's both. This is a promise. Promise. It can never be broken. And as soon as that blood ring settles on Oblivion's finger and closes and like stops burning so bright and adheres to their skin perfectly, uh, magic explodes outward from that point of contact and sweeps across the stage and all of the fallen paragons, you feel like air beginning to rush back into your lungs, your hearts start beating again as oblivion brings you all back to full health. Every single person on the stage, back to full. And then Oblivion gently cupping that finger with the ring, with the fingers of their other hand, like it's a precious bird's egg. Look at you deeply, gratefully, Oka. Then turn to glance at Abiku. Um, I do not carry much on me, but there is one thing, and Abiku takes her bow off her back. This was given to me by someone very important who I, I hope you get to know I don't know what will happen if you will get to stay um but it's helped me be strong and I hope it will help you too and she'll hand over her bow Oblivion takes this draconic winged bow that was a wedding gift to you from two very dear friends from a beloved and as she takes it in her hand, the bow cascades into dark light that webs and encircles the forearm of her right arm to form like a draconic wing tattoo 
uh, and it glows dark and then dies down again uh, as she lifts her hand up and observes this new marking on Dr. Lusso's previously completely unblemished, unmarked skin. And Oblivion looks at you and nods once in gratitude, Abiku. And on that, we pan over to Vasanti. Uh, as life fills back into Vasanti, her hand, which was so weakly within Revs and her lips that were so, you know, loose on Revs, just like spring into tightness as she, and her eyes open. And her first thought is looking at Rev and make and seeing Rev also have this moment of like being rejuvenated. And there's like, you know, she's just at one moment, just takes a moment to re put her hand on the back of Rev's head and just like put their foreheads together and just like have a moment of like thankfulness that they, they made it. And then she turns her attention. She gets up off the ground. And at first she walks kind of past Oblivion to look at Fate and Magic, who she has not yet ever addressed. And she says, Fate, I have always hated you. The idea of you, and now the actual version of you. I have fought against you all of my life. Anything my mother told me that I was destined to do, I tried my best to go the exact opposite way. And yet I still find myself in this moment, and I'm sick of it. And Vasanti looks at, at magic. Magic, I have always relied on you. My lineage is ripe with your power. You have given me so much, and here we are now, and I'm nothing but disappointed in you. And now Vasanti turns to Oblivion. Oblivion, I have always feared you. I did everything I could to avoid you, and for so long I did it all alone. And now, and she's like walking closer to her, now I welcome you with open arms as a friend. I don't know what to give you. This journey has taken so much from me. I mean, I, and then she like takes off her extremely heavy uh, gold uh, coin pouch. I would give you this, but this is so worthless. And she like just drops in and lands with like the heaviest of thuds onto the ground. Instead, I offer you the one thing I have of value. The one thing that I've relied on all of my life for survival. The only thing I have ever loved more than love itself for so long. Until now. So, it is with a heart full of more treasure than all the vaults of Endake I give to you all of my magic. And for those of you who are adept at the weave, Normally, when Vasanti begins to use magic, you can feel it around her as she manipulates the weave around her, but this is actually coming from within her. Deep within her. So deep, in fact, it's almost on a cellular level as Vasanti's will pushes so hard and separates the weave from the very fabric of her being. There is a red glow that starts to emit from Vasanti as if, if Oblivion allows it, she will put her hands on each side of Oblivion's face. And she leans in and presses her forehead to Oblivion, and there is a transference. The red glow starts to lap around Vasanti's body like flames, flames that slowly start to consume Oblivion as well, and they both burn bright with red, flickering red glow, which slowly extinguishes on Vasanti, 
and seems then slowly the flames absorb into oblivion as Vasanti gives oblivion all of her magical ability, the lineage of hundreds of thousands of years of draconic titan magic. And from this point forward, Vasanti cannot use her magic ever again. Holy shit. As the flames die down, and Oblivion's hair also like stops ruffling and this wind dies and whoosh, both of you sort of settle down with your clothes flapping in this breeze. She looks down at the hand, the arm that has those draconic wings and both of you see color flood into the lines of the tattoo, color of purple, green, and red, your signatures. Uh, and they turn their hand left and right, uh, and they open up their palm, and we see the little motes of a chromatic orb uh, flicker up and weave into existence in her palm, just the way you always did it. And then she closes her hand, and that orb vanishes. And Oblivion looks at you deeply and says, A gift freely given from a friend is one I shall always accept. Thank you, Visanti. Thank you. And now we pan over to Gentle. Um, I don't have a lot. And I think I even say that as I walk over to Oblivion. But if there's one thing that has always kept me company at my loneliest, it would be this. And uh, the one thing that I always carry with me is my tea set. The cups the teapot, all of the spices, everything I used to make, candy or anything for anyone around me. I give that up. Um, no matter where you go, no matter what happens, no matter how lonely you feel or how overwhelmed you feel, this has always been the thing that helps me ground myself. And I want you to have it. I think it would help. Oblivion accepts your tea set uh, in cupped hands. And just like with Abiku's bow, uh, the set glows, 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 and then discorporates in glowing motes of void light. And as they settle down, we see a wreath of tea leaves, sort of a tattoo of it, band around their other wrist, underneath the hand that has Oka's blood halo ring. Gentle, thank you. This will nourish me for as long as stars have light. And we cut now over to Jaron. Jaron fiddles in their pockets for something, and they pull out a wooden carved small pin brooch of some kind of a wolf's head. This was an insignia, a badge of some sort that Mercy a long time ago had the idea that the Hounds should have as a way of, you know, a uniform of sorts. It never really caught on, to be honest. Everybody made fun of her for making them, but Jaron secretly loved them. And he kept his all this time on him, even when he got fired from the Hounds, even when Mercy refused to talk to them, he kept it. And so he walks over to Oblivion, and he kind of chuckles. 
as they hold it out. My friends, they're the first real family I've ever had. They're the reason that I'm even here today. They make me better. They keep me from falling into darkness, from being worse. They are me, and I am them. And so I want you to feel the same love that I have felt with this family. I want you to be part of this family with us. Fate is an offer I intend to reject, so let's make some choices together. Choices of our own. Oblivion accepts the wolf's head pin. They take it in their hand and turn it around curiously. (laughs) And then they place it over their heart, and that pin also vanishes in a moat of void light. And glowing underneath the black fabric of their sleeveless turtleneck, we see the outline of that wolf's head pin, now memorialized forever as a tattoo, glowing on their chest over where their heart would be. And then those like spikes of light die down, and like their, the surface of their tunic grows unruffled again. Thank you for reminding me I always have a choice, Jaron. And now we pan over to Dewey. Dewey sits up um, from the ground where he was, sort of dusts himself off, and he's been using his uh, god jar as sort of like uh, a bag of holding a little bit. Um, And he's sort of, he's got his hand all the way inside of it, digging around. Um, And he pulls out a shard of one of the jars that he, um, one of the prototypes for the god jar that got smashed. Um, And one of these, uh, this shard of porcelain, I think is sanded down into the shape of a chisel. Um, And it's attached to an absolute mess of jewelry chain, and he hands over this, uh, he hands over this tangled ball of chain and says, uh, sorry about the, um, sorry that it's tangled. I haven't known you long enough to know what your style is. Uh, if you want to do like a necklace thing or, um, a body chain, um, but uh, he passes his hand over the chisel and it alternates between glowing bright light and uh, glowing with a darkness, sort of. And Dewey says, through making this god jar, this forge, I've created, I've destroyed, I've found balance, um, and I've found friendship. Um, and I hope this can be a, rem- a reminder to you of the same. Oblivion accepts this balled-up chain, which has that piece of shattered jewelry at the end fashioned into the shape of a pendant, of a chisel. And they flick their hand and the chains untangle instantly, uh, and they unclasp it on one end and they clasp it around their neck. Uh, And it dangles there over their sternum in a 
perfect echo of the pendants hanging around each of your bodies as well. As they look down at this shard that used to be a god jar, and they hold it tight in one hand, and when it comes loose again, we see it glow with a blue and a black void color at once. Dr. Luso and a tinge of Oblivion. And Oblivion looks at you, Dewey, and says, Thank you, Dewey. You're a good father. And we pan now to Sitlali. Sitlali disentangles themselves from Mercy, eventually. Um, and I think is leaning more heavily on her cane than normal because, oof, ow, mm, that's a lot that just happened from me. Um, <laughs> and I think as she comes to face Oblivion, uh, from a lifetime ago, in their hands is a marked tarot deck from way back before everything. And they shuffle it with the same dexterity that they used to when they were running cons and then settle and pull a card and it's the star. And they present it to Oblivion. Do you know what this means? Tell me. Hope, faith, purpose. Those are things I see in you. And they place it back on the top of the deck, face up, and hand the deck to Oblivion. Oblivion takes the deck. They shuffle through it with the exact same dexterity as you, almost like they observed you and then copied you perfectly. Uh, as they shuffle the cards, they look through each of the arcana, each of the various faces, each of the various descriptions and symbols and colors, and then they drop the pile back onto itself and twist their hand and it's gone in just a flicker of black light. And then we see that wolf's head insignia, that tattoo glowing over their chest, we see it glow once more, but this time beams of starlight radiate outward from it, uh, and we see like black Fingers of just pure black thread go up their throat and terminate at the bottom of their chin, like go down their arm and terminate at the wrist with that wreath of tea leaves, right? And go down their legs all through their body, a starlight beaming out from their heart. Thank you. You know, you're a star as well. And finally, we pan to Vosca. I knew it was coming, but I was still not prepared. <sighs> Vaska watches all of these gifts be bequeathed quietly, her left arm supporting her lower back as she rises from being nearly dead just moments before. And she looks at all of the gifts and thinks of what she could give. She walks over to Oblivion gestures for them to twirl for her. <laughs> they do. They spin once. She grabs the crystal that sits around her neck. A gift 
a long time ago from her lover before she became champion. Snaps the chain off of her neck and says, let me adjust the length for you. And from Oblivion's back, adorns them with that necklace so that you not ever forget that we all love you in all of the ages of the world love will endure my friend and I think as she does that she steps back to look at Oblivion I always thought you were the most beautiful person I had laid eyes on Oblivion finishes turning and tell me Vasco, what color is that crystal? It is a it is it's actually quite ironic that it looks almost like a shard of ice. It is dyed deep blue with veins and almost like a chalk-like quality at the edges. It is it has scars in it. It seems that this might have been a bigger piece at one mm. point and it broke. And in the breaking, and it's formed in this beautiful, crude way. I love that. They finish twirling, and as soon as that crystal, broken but beautiful, settles in front of their heart next to the shard of the god jar that Dewey offered, uh, it explodes outward in a cascade of void light, your offering. And then these points of black light, some of them settle on her ears, some on her face, on her lip. And when they die down, we see piercings uh, on her ears, her bridge, her nose, her lips of that bright crystal blue and white that Vasca had gifted. And then Oblivion turns the face fate. Fate. I have spent an infinity asking myself one simple question. Why won't destiny give me a choice? Why do you refuse to let my domain be anything but vicious, but terrible? but evil. Let me guess. It's because I'm a horrible person. No. It's because you're scared. You're scared because I am the only force in the multiverse that could destroy you. I am the only thing light flees from. I am the only thing destiny cannot avoid. You didn't make me. I came first. You didn't write me into the journey. And when I came, when I followed, you made me a villain. Even so, that wasn't enough to rob me of my power. You and I both know I could end you. So that's what this is about, then. A fight to annihilation. No. That's not the whole story. 
You're not just scared, fate. You're ignorant. You don't understand me. You don't understand anything you've made. You never have because you don't care. You've never tried. You and magic both are precepts that govern creation. So you struggle inherently to understand the value of an end, as I have struggled inherently to understand the value of a life. But these mortals, these worthy people you call pebbles, you call dust, footprints, they have shown me there is beauty, there is worth in being. And perhaps it is time I showed you the beauty and worth of not being. Is that a threat? No. It's a choice. A choice you have robbed me of. Which brings me to the third and final reason you refuse to grant me autonomy. Since reality began, it's been your story, fate. Magic is involved, yes, but not as a set builder, merely as an artisan. You are the real artist, the real voice, the sculptor, the director, the writer. You wrote me a single role, the villain who ruins and ends everything. If you were to actually give me a choice, I would become an equal storyteller. You and I both know this. I would become a co-writer. I would be able to say this is where the story should end. I would be a winnower, a pruner, a caretaker of aging trees, trimming sideways branches to support the health of the central trunk, culling dead stems so the forest can grow. If I had a choice, you and Magic both would be responsible for your domains. You would answer for the seeds you sow. You wouldn't just sow them and leave abandon them to be consumed by me. You say I've been the villain. I say I've been cleaning up your messes since day one. If I truly had a choice, we'd be responsible for each other, to each other. Which means you and Magic both would have to give up some freedom, some power, you would have to acknowledge me not as an opponent, not as a foe, but as an equal. And that's why you haven't given me a choice yet. You are scared, you are ignorant, and you are selfish. And that's when the sky explodes. A hundred colors, a thousand colors, an infinite array of colors metastasizing across a shattered horizon. Streaks of light, blots of darkness, an unyielding canvas of furious artistry. 
The cradle of Endake cracks open. The stage is swallowed. The screams of soldiers and monsters silenced. Welling up from the ground that is also the sky, coming down from the sky that is also the ground, spikes. Sharp, jagged spikes of bone, coral, luster, poetry, speed toward oblivion faster than light. Hitsagaden's body straightens like a flag in a stiff wind, and the spikes lance through them in every direction, like a heart impaled on its own broken ribcage. The world trembles. Mountains bleed into rivers. Rivers bleed into a dried-up ocean. Oblivion, impaled, twitches their wrist, snaps, and the spikes turn to dust and the dust turns to black, and the black turns on fate, and fate claps, and the world is now a forest, a forest of a million trees, trees that are fingers, fingers that are bending and seizing upon oblivion, nails of bark, knuckles of moss, veins of drooping vine, grasping, snatching the cracks in these trunks shot through with radiant gold, oblivion is grabbed, squeezed, slammed, thrown, but they rise, unharmed, pebbles of grave dirt cascading from their shoulders. They wave their hand like a driver, letting a pedestrian pass, and the forest is gone, and the trees are shadows, void, tendrils of pure, vacuous energy collapsing existence where they meet. The tendrils made of feathery wings turn on fate like sharks, sensing blood and fate claps and the forest inverts into a city, an intersection, a blaring feast of pavement and rain and motor oil and lights, 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 rising off signs, rising off the burnt ends of cigarettes, rising off the gleaming, terrified eyes of a thousand onlookers. Fate spins the light into a hammer, and the hammer smashes oblivion through a bus, through a building, through a truck. And the rubble screams, the people flee, oblivion rises, the building crumbles, the trucks grow fangs, tails, eyes, drooling mother's blood, black ichor dripping onto rain-slick concrete, and the entropic beasts pounce, claws scything through the air like a reaper's axe, and fate turns, and the city is lava, a world of lava, molten craters of fire, bubbling pits of steam, lumbering creatures of stone and gems and porous fabric, and fate lifts a river of flame out of its bed and swarms it forward, gurgling, hissing, toward oblivion who snaps, and the river splashes around their feet into water, into ash, into nothing, rocks, then explode from the earth form, shackles form blades, clamp around Oblivion's ankles, her wrists, her neck, pull her down, slam! The world shakes, the ground inverts, Oblivion rises unharmed, shackles falling off her skin like fog. Fate claps, and we're in a desert. A tumbling cacophony of wind and rock and salt, the breeze furious, the grains of sand lashing against skin like a trillion tiny razor-sharp knives. A dune rises, explodes, and a worm the size of a moon 
hurdles toward oblivion, its mouths open, gnawing, roving, hungry, teeth gnashing larger, each tooth then continents. It hits oblivion with the impact of planets colliding and then collapses beautifully into sand. Sand that the whipping, screaming wind washes away into nothing. Fate claps and the world is a maze. An endless maze, with walls of stone and glass and fire and light, twisting, turning, changing, burning. And on and on and on they fight and fight and fight. Fate creating, manifesting, conjuring, teleporting, transmuting, attacking. Oblivion negating, dismissing, dodging, nullifying, defending. And from your perspective, as paragons and keepers of the highest mortal caliber, imbued with divine providence from your perspective, less than a tenth of a second has passed. Oblivion and fate are moving so quickly, are changing the laws of reality all around you at such a staggering rate that what you perceive on the stage and in your world is incomprehensible. Everything, everywhere, all around you blurs into a bleeding miasma of pure color. The sky is gone, the stage is gone. There is only color, color and magic. Magic stands in front of all of you, observing the fight. His face is radiant, his face is dark. What do you do? Um, <clears throat> Ma magic, yes? Slowly, slowly, magic turns. Their iridescent, shimmering, mercurial, endless robe billowing in a windless breeze. And they look at you with those eyes that are every color at once. Yes? Oh, okay. Sorry. Earlier, you like pretended we didn't exist. I didn't expect you to turn around. Um, hello. I, I am Lieutenant Abiku Isha. Um, so it sounds like you weren't mean to our friend directly. So I don't hate you inherently. Just so you know. Um, we are. I do cool. a little bit. That is fair. I can't speak for everybody. We are cool right now. We would be cooler if you could like. Can you, like, talk to your family? Magic takes a, a minute to just look at you. And then he says, I've never actually fully, truly met Oblivion before. I met them out there in perceptual space. A long, long time ago, that was also yesterday, that was also tomorrow. I've never... And they look back at the swirling colors, and you realize their eyes are moving this entire time, but they're moving at a pace that is, like, so rapid, they look like they're still. Uh, and you know they're able to track what's happening, but they are not interfering. So Lolly steps forward draws their rapier and puts their other hand out 
and pulls on the weave all around magic, all of it, and makes it bright and pastel and hot. I swore a blood oath to this. So I guess I'm technically your paladin, huh? Oh, well, yes, I have many of those. This is one of my favorite versions of myself. And Magic raises a hand and they tug the finger again and the pastels glow bright, bright, bright and become intershot with an infinity of other kinds of pastel colors, just swarming around themselves and now curling around you harmlessly, just as like a light show, really. And Magic releases their finger and both your and their light die down. Beautiful, isn't it? Me, I mean. And Sitlali stabs their rapier into the ground in front of them and just says, if you don't care about the people serving you, what the fuck is the point of any of this, of your little journey, other than to satisfy your curiosity? Do something about them or there won't be a journey there won't be people like me to protect your pretty little face um i think at this gentle sort of walks up and is uh magic hi um i kind of have a question for you they blink their infinitely colored eyes at you um have you ever i guess engaged with the world you've made on like a people level no above the table i have a question yeah is go on the battlefield are there is the battlefield still visible are there still people around it's just color y'all are standing on Beautiful. solid ground okay, but just, just swirling sure. around you is just color um i kind of want to see if i can do something then okay um, what are you trying to do I want to pull on the power of like the threads um, and that sort of feeling of connection uh, that exists not just within gentle, but within everyone and sort of almost give them a sensation of like the act of care for not just me, but for everyone. And then that branching out. Mm. I think as you pull on these threads of Nibuza all around you, magic feels you pulling. Uh, they turn and look as we see forms of soldiers, of the other paragons, of the other keepers, of Squeak, of Mercy, of your friends. They appear suddenly emerge like figures uh, stepping into full view in the middle of a whipping dust storm, right? They emerge uh, in the middle of this cacophony of color and they stay there firm and they're looking around wide-eyed, you know, at everything happening all at once. And Magic turns and looks and I think raises a radiant and dark hand up to their chest and touches it as you're trying to imbue these threads, this visibility gentle with care, right? Uh, and it's magical, so magic senses it, they feel it. And you can feel them feeling it resonating in their chest and they look down. And when they look back up, 
All of you see that finally, for the first time since seeing them, an expression crosses their face. It's dark, and it knots their eyebrows together, and their nose scrunches upward in one direction. All of you roll insight. Okay. Abiku, what'd you get? I got a natural 20 for 30. (gasps) (laughs) Okay, what about Oka? Not my, like, final roll of the campaign being an eight. (gasps) No, that's perfect! That's perfect! That's perfect an eight! Because of arc eight. It's a holy number. That's just you. That was for you. That was for (laughs) your life, Humna. No, I'm doing it for you, and eight is a holy number. Humna. I like Humna sitting there doing it for you. I, I, are you the GM now, Humna? Uh, <laughs> yes. What did your What did your rod get? I had a twenty-one. Twenty-one. Do we? Fifteen. Fifteen. Vasanti. Three. Three. He has no magic left. She yeah, that's true. You don't have any magic yet. Yeah. Gentle. Uh, non-natural thirty. Whoa, Vasca. Funny, you're gonna fucking hate me. That is a natural 20 for a 37. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Love to Honey leads into the darkness. Vasca is so perceptive, even Vasanti can see it now. Yeah! yeah. Uh, Lolly, what did you get? Uh, That's another natural 20 for a 31. (gasps) Let's go! Uh, Was that three nat 20s and four rolls that are 30 or above? Holy fuck. So I think with everyone's, the group succeeded spectacularly. So everyone gets to succeed. Uh, Everyone gets to know what's happening. That's how I'm going to rule those like four fucking 30 pluses. Um, So this expression, all of you realize, because you're all like on the same wavelength right now, right? You're all like bonded together. You're standing as a united front. You all see guilt hang on magic's face, plain as a sun, guilt. And it almost looks itchy on their face, like they're not used to their face moving like that. Mm. Mm. Did I do something wrong? You have to see them for who they are, not what you think they are. See the magic in them too. See the nothing, and how beautiful it is. Mm. Mm. But if I, if I see the magic myself in all of you, in this place, in the infinity of places fate and I have gone, have made, then that, then I, well then that would mean we have done many things wrong. That would mean we have hurt many people. We have abandoned many people. Uh, And magic, it's like, you want to get the distinct feeling with your high-ass insight rolls that this is like maybe the first time in ever that magic has grappled with this. This idea that they might be wrong. This idea that they've hurt people and they don't really know how to deal with that feeling. It's like a world-ending grief, almost, at being in the wrong in a real way for the first time since time. It's never too late 
it's never too late to fix your mistakes. Yes, you've hurt people. I mean, that much is clear, I think. But that doesn't mean you have to keep hurting people. You get to stop right now. You get to help make things better. But what do we do about the people who have died already? You mourn them. Mm, that sounds painful. It is. Very. That's a lot. Oh. Well, I don't know if she'd listen to me. Did you not call her beloved? Yes. Ah. How could a beloved not listen to another? Oh, very easily. You have, oh, what do you call them? Pets, yes, in this world? Do pets exist in this world? Yes. Yes? Ah, yes. She loves me as a pet. Oh, okay. You could ask Oblivion to help you stop her then. Oh, but I have heard Oblivion, haven't I? I don't want to look at them. I can't look at them. That's part of the process, is looking people in the eyes after you've hurt them and telling them that what you did was wrong. Promising to make amends for it. Yes, it hurts, but it's part of it. But what if they don't forgive me? That's their choice. Uh, Magic looks down, brow wrinkled, those swirling everything colors in their eyes turning dark. All of them just are dark by a notch. And when they look back up, they're back to being bright again, but shaded, less vibrant than before, more somber. Okay. Oh. No. I think they're done. Uh, and they turn back at these swirling colors and this whirling, screaming cacophony of visuals all around you. Stop. And all of you in that moment are struck with a dizzying sensation of scorch, void, cold, shatter. And then the stage is back. The sky is back. The arena, the battlefield is back. Half soaked in crimson light, half soaked in starlight. Monsters gibbering, soldiers clashing. And fate is on her back on the stage. And Oblivion is on top of her. And his eyes are blue and brown. And they have a knife in one hand. A glowing blue psionic knife the color of Dr. Eluso's soul, and it's pressed the tip of it against Fate's chest. Fate doesn't look injured, doesn't look harmed, but there's something in the pull of the everything around everything that conveys exhaustion. The wood of the stage underneath her sags, starts to visibly decay. The air itself sighs in desperate The falling white ash turns into the curled up petals of dead leaves by her head, framing her crown in a halo of grim anticipation. And all around fate and oblivion, reality sings with terror, with acceptance, with this will never be, and this has always been. 
And Fade looks up at Oblivion, whose face is still, whose eyes are wide, whose blade is pressed against her all-encompassing heart. And Fate reaches up and touches the side of Oblivion's cheek. Magic takes a step forward, but then stops. And Fate says, I saw this coming. I still love you, you know? I always have. I always will. And Fate closes her eyes and waits for Oblivion to kill her, as she always knew they would. Oblivion speaks. How I feel about you, Fate. Whether or not I love you. Whether or not I am capable of love, especially in a way you understand matters less than how I treat you and how you treat me. The choices I make, the choices you make, and you have chosen to hurt me over and over, across realities, across infinity. You have chosen to make me a villain, to abandon the people you create to gallivant across the multiverse with your toy instead of caring about the realities you construct. Whereas I, my hand forced, my choice stolen, still I have always tried to help. Always. I hated every infinite minute of causing annihilation. But it was what I had to do because of the choices you made for me. I don't love you, Fate. I don't think I love anyone or anything, certainly not in a way that is legible to you or to magic. But that doesn't make me any less of a precept than you. Any less of a person. I am still me, and I decide what I am, who I am. No one else. My terms. If I choose to become death, then I shall. If I choose to become blood and pain, then so be it. If I choose to be love, to be loved, to be beautiful, than I am. And now I choose to spare you. This episode of The Second Stranger was edited by Connie Chong. Transplaner RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter and ExplainTrade.com, a negotiation skills training consultancy, because you can't ask to roll persuasion in real life. Check out ExplainTrade.com.
please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This helps so much with getting new listeners to find us. New podcast episodes drop every Tuesday. If you can't wait that long, tune into our live stream Saturdays at 7 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Twitch at TransplanarRPG. Also, toss us a follow on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at TransplanarRPG. We also have a Patreon. Patrons get early access to episodes, character sheets, high-res art, and much, much more. And finally, a very special thank you to our Patreon paragons. Alex, Brooke Bright, Brooke in Seattle, Charles, Chiacres, Cora Eckert, Hat, Conding, Lex Slater, Lyle and Peanut, Matt Sweeney, Purple Mouse, Riley, Spencer Critchfield, Scruffesis, and Target.